Headwaters is brought to you by the Glacier National Park Conservancy. Just about every day, I hear the rumble of trains throughout West Glacier, whether I'm inside or out. The sound of trains punctuate a lot of daily life in Glacier. And that line running along the park's southern boundary has been in service since the steam engine nearly 130 years ago. And anything with that long of a legacy leaves a mark. Tell me this, Daniel. What do you think the most common name for a business is around here? Uh, I feel like Glacier being in the name of a lot of things. Yes, there's a lot of businesses named Glacier. Glacier Cat Groomers, Glacier Golf, Glacier Gas. There's a bunch. So that shouldn't be surprising. But close behind are businesses named Great Northern. There's the Great Northern Veterinary Office, Great Northern Concrete, Great Northern Llama Ranch. Close to 40 other businesses that share that name in Flathead County alone. So today, our local railroad is serviced by Amtrak and BNSF, or Burlington Northern Santa Fe. But it was their predecessor, the Great Northern Railway, that started it all. Great Northern skirts the southern boundary of Glacier Park for 57 miles. This is Great Northern. Not the railroad or the train, but this car and its contents. A rolling inventory of America's wealth. My question... Who built the Great Northern Railway? History is shaped by great men wielding absolute power. Men with vast vaults of money and epic dreams executives, kings, presidents, generals. It is these men who bend the world and shape history into new chapters. The rest of us are mere pawns. Or at least, that's how one theory goes. You're listening to Headwaters, a podcast about how Glacier National Park connects to everything else. This is season three, Becoming. It's about the people, the profit margins, and the promises that defined the West before a national park tried to do the same. This episode starts with one of history's great men, James J. Hill, the founder of the Great Northern Railway. He cut a literal line across the country, through towns, tribes, and the edge of what would become Glacier National Park. And in the process, became one of the most powerful businessmen of his time, even if it didn't start that way. And you've been looking into that history of the Great Northern, both from the bottom up and the top down. Yeah, from a lot of different angles. Working here, you hear about Great Northern all the time. You get to hear a lot about all the things they would go on to do to shape the park. But what I've never understood is how did they get here in the first place? Like, who built the Great Northern Railway? And how, after eight years of living here, have I never ridden the train? So where do we start? We start at the beginning. Assuming I have never heard of him before, who is J.J. Hill and and why should I know his name? Who is James J. Hill? He was known as the Empire Builder and the Devil's Curse. Streets, towns, and counties were named in his honor, along with a persistent and invasive weed. He was mythologized in novels and was the subject of folk songs and union battle cries. I called Steven Sadis, a producer and filmmaker who just finished a four-part docu-series called The Empire Builder, 
James J. Hill and the Great Northern Railway, which you'll be hearing clips of throughout. At just 17 years old, Hill moved from Ontario, where he was born, to St. Paul, Minnesota. Within 15 years, he went from a job as an entry-level bookkeeper to running a warehouse of his own and operating a steamship company. He had made a name for himself. Local newspapers took note. This remarkable young man has kept accurate statistics for many years of all the freight coming into... J.J. Hill is prepared to give shippers the lowest rates ever quoted from here to eastern points. He beats all his competitors and in return gets the bulk of the transportation business. When Mr. Hill starts to accomplish a thing, he does it complete. If you needed to ship something or have something shipped to you, Hill could do it faster and cheaper than the other guy. He was like... Amazon if they used ox carts and steamboats. He had a good reputation. He said what he meant and did what he said, and people trusted him. Why did he want, why did he get into the railroad business? You know, I think he had visions of a transportation empire. I mean, it's very clear in early St. Paul history when the town got its first locomotive. I mean, he was constantly saying to other people what he would do if he would run the line. I mean, it's to the point where people were like, yeah, yeah, Jim, we know. Yeah, you do a much better job. Hill had an incredible track record for a young entrepreneur. And yet, when he finally bought a small bankrupt railroad and announced his plans to build it all the way to the West... People called him an idiot. I need to know more. Why? Well, there were a few reasons. First of all, honestly, he was late to the game. He wanted to build a transcontinental line through Montana and onto the coast. But that line already existed. The Northern Pacific ran through southern Montana, and the Canadian Pacific, just to the north, ran through Alberta. So it was a fourth transcontinental that would thread a line between these other two. And it was... Unnecessary. It was ridiculous. The New York Times stated that no sane man could think of paralleling these lines without inviting bankruptcy and dubbed the notion Hill's Folly. So it sounds like there just wasn't a need, basically. Right. Like the region already has two railroads. Why would it need a third? Yeah. But the other reason people called this idea Hill's Folly was the money. Building 3,000 miles of railroad isn't cheap. But for a while there, the U.S. government would pay you if you tried. Lincoln put his pen to the Pacific Railway Act, authorizing the government to offer loans and land grants to railroad owners for every mile of track laid from the Missouri River to the Pacific Ocean. This policy worked. It jump-started railroad construction, but it also encouraged railroad companies to game the system, building curvy lines in order to gobble up as much land as possible. I mean, really, the real estate business began with the railroads. At one point, the railroads owned like 6% of all the land in the United States, which is, you know, mammoth. By the time Hill was getting started, Congress had caught on. They stopped giving out land or loans to railroad companies. And without this assistance, Hill had to find private funding. He had to convince people that this line, which the New York Times was calling a bad idea, was a worthwhile investment. Okay, so what's different here is that all the other railroad companies, they were getting federal aid. Right. But Hill, he had to pay his own way for the Great Northern. Exactly. And letters from the Times suggest he found raising money to be the hardest part of the job. Networking, schmoozing, owing favors. But it paid off. He sold investors on the idea that his line could be built better and more efficiently 
than any other. His mantra was the lowest grade, least curvature, and shortest distance, and everything banked on that. What was next was finding a route that would make that possible. As Hill's heading west, he's, he's chosen his route, and it happens that he needs to get through Indian territory. Beginning in 1851, the Blackfeet, Grovant, River Crow, and Assiniboine were restricted to reservation land that spread across much of Montana territory. But over the course of 30 years, the reservation had been reduced nine times by treaty and executive order. But tribal land was still in Hill's way. He couldn't build through the Fort Berthold or Blackfeet reservations in present-day North Dakota and Montana without a right-of-way. So in 1886, he started putting pressure on Congress and the president to open the land. Hill was working back channels in order to get that approval uh, to bring his lines through Indian territory. Hill, for his part, was busy writing letters to congressmen. Mr. McGinnis is interested on behalf of his territory in a bill granting right-of-way to railroads in northern Montana. Any assistance you can render him will be a personal favor to me and to our friends, for which I will be glad at any time to reciprocate. Yours very truly, James J. Hill. Ultimately, it worked. They passed a bill that granted Hill a right-of-way, but it wasn't a permission slip through tribal lands. It required tribes, already reeling from famine, to give up a massive amount of reservation land, an area almost equivalent to the state of South Carolina. Here's Leah Whitford, a former Montana state senator and Blackfeet tribal member that Stephen interviewed to get the Blackfeet perspective on Hill blazing his railroad through Montana. The 1888 agreement that came, well, that was just right after the starvation winter. You have hundreds of people that are dying. You have leaders that have to make some real hard decisions. And what do we have of value? And so you have land. The Blackfeet are open to it because they have no choice. The tribes living on the Blackfeet and Fort Berthold reservations accepted the terms, drastically reducing their territory by 19 and a half million acres. While many are quick to celebrate Hill's efforts to privately finance the railroad, the highest price paid for his progress wasn't a financial one. In September of the next year, Hill would change the name of his business to the Great Northern Railway. That November, Montana became a state, and the month after that, surveyor John F. Stevens located Marias Pass the lowest elevation crossing of the Continental Divide between Canada and New Mexico, and Hill's ticket to the Pacific coast. That at least ensures Hill that he can get through the Rockies, not without enormous difficulty in construction, but there is a pass that is manageable in its elevation gain, and that sort of is, is the first piece in the puzzle. The section of track that today borders the southern tip of Glacier was the proof Hill needed that his plan would work. And by 1891, juggling an incredible amount of materials, manpower, and unpredictable terrain, he laid rails over the Rockies, closing the distance on his transcontinental line. You know, you're talking about bringing thousands of railroad ties and tons of rails. It's like those cartoons where uh, Gaffy Duck is riding on the locomotive and he's laying down track in front of him, and it's not a whole lot different than that. And so you have these 
8,000 men and 6,000 animals and you have to feed them and you have to house them and you have to uh, take care of all sort of maladies that occur and injuries and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a mobile town that is building this line. It's an, uh, an amazing achievement. On January 6th, 1893, just west of the town of scenic Washington, the eastern and western sections of the Great Northern Railway were connected. As two superintendents took turns driving home the final spike, revolvers shot into the air amid the cheers of 200 rail workers. It was a moment that crystallized Hill's longtime dream of a transcontinental railway of his own. It is hard to understand today how much Great Northern and railroads like it transformed the country. If you wanted to get from one side of the country to the other in 1800, it took maybe four to six months, either by arduous wagon trip or by sailing all the way around South America. In 1893, you could make the same trip by rail in less than a week. It's infiltrated our vocabulary in ways that I never really thought about. Like blowing off steam might seem obvious, that's an expression from steam engines, but sidetracked, backtracked, uh, even switchbacks, which I think of as being a trail thing, that's a train thing. And just the, a massive power that these lines had to dictate the future of a place. Like when Hill was building into the Flathead Valley, he had the choice to build south towards the first and largest town in the Flathead Valley, which was called Demersville. It had churches, banks, newspapers, over a thousand people. Uh, but Hill decided instead to found his own town just to the north, which he named Kalispell. Kalispell is the county seat today, and all that remains of Demersville is a cemetery. Great Northern transformed the landscape as it went, and transformed Hill from the son of Irish farmers into one of the richest men alive, earning him the nickname the Empire Builder. You have this transformative technology that is making millionaires every week. I mean, it's not a whole lot different than when the internet emerged. Uh, he was enormously wealthy. He was at one time the third and another time the 10th wealthiest man in the country. James J. Hill embodied what many people see as the American dream. The promise that you can achieve the impossible if you put in the work. And when we look back at this era of transcontinental railroads, it's often with pride, admiring everything our nation accomplished in spite of all the obstacles. Take, for example, a speech. In 1969, Secretary of Transportation John Volpe went to speak at a celebration, the 100th anniversary of the very first transcontinental railroad. Here's what he said. Who else but Americans could drill 10 tunnels in mountains three feet deep in snow? Who else but Americans could chisel through miles of solid granite? Who else but Americans could have laid 10 miles of track in 12 hours? He either didn't know or didn't share the answer to his own question. Who else but Americans? Thirty minutes outside of Glacier sits the town of Whitefish, another town that Great Northern put on the map. And early on, it was home to a lot of Great Northern's employees. I went to Whitefish this summer in search of a historic plaque. I think that's it, right on the corner. 
Not long after the Great Northern Railway announced its plans for a division point in Whitefish, Whitefish had its first church. I don't know about you, but I love reading plaques like this. I've seen them all over the country, sometimes bronze, sometimes silver, always with some interesting context about the place I'm visiting. And yet, I somehow didn't know that my own employer manages this program. A guy named Paul oversees the state of Montana. My name is Paul Lusignan. I'm a historian with the National Register of Historic Places program within the National Park Service. I could tell you that at the time of this recording, there are 63 different national parks. But I didn't know until this year that a small team of Park Service employees helps preserve over 90,000 small sites like this all over the country. What is the National Register program, if you had to describe it? It is a largely an honorary program, but it's a list of, of properties, um, cultural resources that are worthy of preservation. Paul said honorary because listing something on the register doesn't freeze it in time. You can still make changes to a building, for example. But it helps ensure that federally funded projects minimize their impact on our shared history. They have to review whether it will impact historic buildings or not, historic resources. Mm -hmm. The same way they have to take into account endangered species or water conservation. The register is a record of sites like this church that have historical significance and helps them share their story. The committee chose a Romanesque revival style, considered less ostentatious. Masonry construction. Nominations are collected by states and tribes who send them to Paul and his boss who just might have the coolest sounding job title in the National Park Service, the Keeper of the National Register. The, the Keeper has designated authority to me to list properties in the National Register. And this comes back to the good old days when the National Register was actually a book. It was a like green a book <laughs> in which you opened the cover, you wrote in the name of the property and the date of listing, and then you shut the book and it was listed in the National Register. But the whole process begins at the ground level. Anyone can identify something of historical value in their community and nominate it for listing. You could, if you wanted to. That's how this church in Whitefish wound up on the register. Congregation members led the charge. And that's how I learned about the railroad history, preserved in their stained glass windows. Good morning. Good morning. You're coming in here? I am. What? I was actually invited in for a visit and was greeted by interim pastor Paul Hayden. Paul Hayden. Bob's right here. Hello. You're here, Mike? Michael, yep. Michael. And congregation members Bob Palus and Jesse Frazier. Where are we right now? First Presbyterian Church of Whitefish, Whitefish, Montana. Since this is all audio, would you mind describing the windows? Describing them? What do they I, look like? How tall are they? That sort of oh, thing. Oh, I don't know the dimensions. Oh, just eyeball. It doesn't need to be exact. They're absolutely wonderful, beautiful. <laughs> I don't know. Tiffany style. They're <laughs> Tiffany style. There you go. Tiffany. 14 feet wide by 6 feet across. There. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> I knew you came along for a reason. <laughs> From a minister's standpoint, You'll notice that the pews are looking away from the windows, which I am very grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, sitting there in, in church and being distracted, looking, it's hard enough to keep people's attention as it is. <laughs> Each pair of windows was donated by local community members during the building's construction in 1921. And reading the dedications is a regular who's who of early whitefish. There are prominent bankers and early loggers. Over here, they all put money in towards these windows. Mm -hmm. Special. And James Little. But the pair of windows that brought me in read, 
with gratitude from the Japanese. And the Japanese said $705 for two windows. More than $8,500 today, a small fortune donated by Japanese men who worked for Great Northern. Men James J. Hill hired to realize his dream, and men I'd never heard of before. Who else but Americans? They would hire whoever would be willing to work for the company, including uh, Irish immigrants or recent immigrants. To get some context, I turned to another national park site, Golden Spike National Historical Park. So we're located in Box Elder County in northern Utah, and it's where the first transcontinental railroad was completed on May 10th, 1869. This is Lucas. Uh, Lucas Hugie. I'm the lead park ranger here at Golden Spike National Historical Park. And I called him because the first Transcontinental Railroad, finished years before J.J. Hill joined the railroad business, set a precedent that everyone building out west would follow. They figured out who to hire. So you have people coming into the country, and they're not really anchored to any part of the country yet. And so when they find out that there's a chance to work on the railroad, make decent wages, they're willing to sign on for that. Irish, German, and Italian immigrants were laying the tracks westward from Iowa, alongside Civil War veterans and recently emancipated Black Americans. But the Central Pacific, who was building east from Sacramento, they were having a hard time keeping anyone on the payroll. Every time that there was a gold strike somewhere, this workforce would disappear. These guys would, as soon as they got paid walk off the job and go try their luck in uh, the gold fields. The promise of the gold rush drew thousands of people to California, including some of the first Chinese immigrants to the United States. Thousands of Chinese men emigrated to the U.S., but they weren't provided the same opportunity as other miners. Panic and prejudice among white Americans led to the passage of a foreign miners tax. And if you're a foreigner, specifically a foreigner from China, you actually could be taxed up to $20 a month to stake a gold mining claim. Nearly $800 a month today. And so men who had crossed the Pacific in search of a better life instead found themselves stuck, working someone else's claim for a fraction of the payout. Meanwhile, Central Pacific is desperate and their labor shortage and decide to hire 50 Chinese workers as a trial run. They ended up being fantastic workers because they didn't walk off the job at the end of the day when there was a gold mining strike. Chinese men would soon make up most of the workforce on the Central Pacific. And as it turns out, the railroad also appreciated these workers because they could get away with paying them less. You're looking at around $26 a month for for these guys. The Union Pacific provided room and board for their workers, whereas the Central Pacific, they just kind of let the Chinese fend for themselves. They had to pay for their own board or like wherever they're going to be sleeping, and they also had to pay for their own food. As many as 20,000 Chinese laborers went on to help build the first transcontinental railroad. And this hiring practice became a template for other railroads building in the West. The railroads needed workers, and the Chinese needed jobs. That voice, who you might recognize as George Takei, is from a documentary called From the Far East to the Old West, produced by the University of Montana. Few people realize that Chinese labor made up most of the workforce on key sections of the Northern Pacific Railroad. In the face of backbreaking labor and deadly work with explosives, Chinese immigrant laborers were reliable, and most importantly in the railroad's eyes, they were cheap. Which brings us back to Great Northern. 
Hill had recruited a lot of Scandinavian and German immigrants to help build his main line. But after the initial phase of construction, those employees either began to quit or ask for more money. This is where the other Western railroads turned to Chinese labor. But by the time Hill arrived in the West, the practice of hiring cheap Chinese workers, often in the place of white laborers who demanded higher pay, had driven loud and public anti-Chinese racism. One especially lengthy and venomous commentary in the Missoula Gazette argued, Our government erred in ever allowing that race a foothold on our soil. They have in Missoula, as elsewhere, usurped places which could be filled by respectable men and women. The time has come when measures should be taken to rid ourselves of this past, lest it destroy us. Resolve. This sentiment led to the passage of more anti-Chinese legislation and the first significant law restricting immigration to the United States. The most far-reaching was the 1882 Exclusion Act, which prohibited immigration by Chinese laborers and their families. Hill, arriving after the passage of the Exclusion Act, had to look elsewhere. But those railroads still wanted cheap labor. With their supply of Chinese laborers cut off, the railroad barons once again looked across the Pacific to fill their needs, this time to Japan. And actually, the Japanese government was encouraging young Japanese men to go overseas to gain jobs. That voice is Linda Tamura. I'm Linda Tamura. I'm a proud orchard kid from Hood River, Oregon. I'm also a former elementary teacher and professor emerita of education at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. Who I called to ask about Issei. You know, for people who've never heard the term before, could you describe what uh, Issei means? Sure. Issei were the first generation of Japanese immigrants to the United States. In Japanese, Ichi means one, and Sei means generation. So from Ichi Sei, we have Issei, the first generation, my grandparents and their contemporaries. How did you first learn about early Issei laborers in the U.S.? I didn't learn about Issei laborers from my grandparents or from other Japanese Americans or even in high school or even college because I learned about Western civilizations and Western immigrants. But in the early 1980s, my uncle suggested that I ask questions of my grandmother, Asayo Noji. She was in her 80s. Uncle Ma'am told me, your grandma lived a really interesting life came to the United States to marry your grandfather. She's still got a great memory and she tells great stories. So why don't you talk to her? Well, I did. Uh, my mom translated mm -hmm. because grandma spoke Japanese and I didn't. And uh, grandma began to tell me a little bit about her life, her immigration to the United States when she was 19 years old. I learned about grandpa, their labor, what began as a conversation with her grandmother turned into a project to document the experience of other Issei laborers, people at the bottom, not the top, of this railroad history. My appetite was whetted. I wanted to learn more. Linda described Japanese immigration to the U.S. as a push and a pull. And the pull came from U.S. companies like Great Northern. And the push came from Japan. You could find ads in Japanese newspapers titled How to Succeed in America. They told that Issei laborers could earn twice as much money in the United States as they might have in Japan. Wow. 
some of the laborers who had gone to the United States came back and they were wearing suits and pretending that they were fairly wealthy. And even some of the young Issei whom I interviewed told me that that tantalized them. Japan had maintained a policy of isolation for centuries. But in the 1880s, Japan's new government began allowing its citizens to seek jobs abroad. The goal was that they would go to the United States, they would work for three to five years, earn enough money to come back and live comfortable lives in Japan. They became known as birds of passage, those who were looking for (laughs) ways to get rich quick. By 1910, tens of thousands of Japanese had left their homeland seeking opportunities in the United States. Great Northern contracted with the Oriental Trading Company, a Japanese-owned business based in Seattle, which organized Issei labor contracts and sent thousands of Issei to Montana. My grandfather was one of those. When he was 16 years old, his uncle was working in the United States and called him over to join him. Grandpa came over, and his first job was actually working on a railroad crew in Cutbank, Montana, in Glacier County. Wow. Cutbank is a small town, even today, on the east side of the Rockies, less than 50 miles from Glacier and more than 5,000 from Japan. He was a hard worker, even as an elderly man, he was a hard worker. And my grandmother told me that Grandpa's supervisors on the railroad would reward him with overtime labor. In 1901, a day's wage for Issei was a dollar and ten cents, and a day's work could be 15 hours. Not to mention their contractor, the Oriental Trading Company, would take a ten-cent daily commission. The, the work was difficult, and the pay was low, but the reason they accepted that was because it turned out it was double what they might have earned in Japan. Oh, so that wasn't false advertising on the newspaper's part. It was more than they it, would have it made. It was, right. But while the pay was better than what they might have received in Japan, conditions were still terrible. One story that I heard over and over was how malnourished they were. They had to pay a stipend for the meals that they were served. And some of them, because they were trying to save money, really almost starved themselves to increase their savings. And the meals were really paltry. Two meals that I heard about a lot were soups. One was miso soup, and that's made from soybean paste. And another was dangojido, which was dumpling soup. I googled it for reference. One serving of miso soup has 40 calories. A banana has 105. With all the hard labor, working 10 to 15 hour days, they had very little protein. And so apparently when they were able to find a jackrabbit or a cow that had been killed by the train, that was a banquet for them. Oh my goodness, I bet. And apparently uh, sometimes the men were even known to have arranged for a cow to be present on the tracks when a railroad train went by. Employees were required to dispose of any animals they came across that had been hit by the train. And so the section hands obediently did so. And then at night, they'd go back and they'd dig up the carcass and they'd um, cook it. And then they had a source of protein. But those were the lengths they took to try to nourish themselves doing hard labor 
on the railroad front. I mean, I, I can't imagine trying to do that on, uh, you know, just soup, <laughs> like miso soup alone. Right. Yeah. What a life. Many Isehu came to the U.S. as birds of passage, hoping one day to return home, started to realize that might never happen. So after my grandfather had been here, I think he was 32, he, along with other Issei men, began to realize their dreams of returning to Japan and, and be wealthy men were not to be realized and that they would end up working longer in the United States and they might even become residents. And so many Issei who had planned to work in the U.S. for three to five years started planning to spend a life here and wanted to find someone to share it with. They often didn't have enough money to go back to Japan to find wives, and so they employed picture brides. The picture bride, or uh, shashin kekon, was the practice where a Japanese men in America exchanged photographs and letters with young women and their families in Japan. And through that exchange of letters and photographs and agreements by the families, they were formally married. And my grandmother was a picture bride when she came to the United States in 1916, 16 years after my grandfather had arrived. Not all Issei worked on railroads. Many worked on farms or in lumber mills. But no matter the job, they all faced the reality of life in a new place. They were young. Often they found that they were living in secluded areas. There weren't a lot of people who lived nearby and certainly not a lot who spoke their language. Life was disappointing for them, although they weren't always ready to admit that easily. December 1905, Henry Katsuji Hashitani, who worked for the Northern Pacific near Missoula, wrote in his diary, all I have done so far is to survive as nothing more than a humble worker, like pigs and cows. Is my youth being wasted? No, I have dreams, I have hopes. Life is nothing if you don't try to better yourself. They had high dreams and high hopes, but often they were shattered. On top of the hard work, low pay, and isolation, Issei began to face discrimination from white Americans, just like the Chinese before them. Apparently, there were Issei who were working for the railroad, living in a house. There were six of them. And one night, there were shots that rang through their windows, and rioters stood outside for an hour and yelled and cursed at them. The Issei men piled up mattresses to try to protect themselves. It was a scare tactic a gunpowdered threat to leave town. The next day, they left, and that was the goal. Apparently, the, the rioters were farmers who, during their off-season, were hired by the railroad as section hands, and they were concerned that their livelihoods might be in danger. That was the kind of incident that occurred along the West Coast and very likely in Montana as well, that other workers were concerned about the competition from Issei who were willing to work long hours, take on jobs that others might not have relished, and were willing to work for less pay because they considered the pay adequate. 
But yes, discrimination was, was an issue for the Issei laborers. An opinion piece in the Kalispell B, the newspaper in the early 1900s, argued that these Japanese laborers weren't buying enough local goods. They were a drain on the local economy uh, and used all sorts of racist terms along the way. And then, you know, the next week in the paper, the Oriental Trading Company would reply, like, we buy everything locally except for miso soup, which isn't made here. Um, And in looking through all these accounts, at no point did it seem like Great Northern ever stepped in and tried to advocate for its employees. Here's Stephen Sadis again. Yeah, I don't think there was any grander plan for Hill in how to, you know, keep the peace or acclimate uh, an ethnic group into a community. I I think he was looking at bottom lines and what's the, the most inexpensive way I can build my line. This discrimination wasn't unique to Asian immigrants. Irish, Italian, Greek laborers, Slavic laborers, among others, were met with racial slurs, politically charged vitriol in communities and in local papers. This wasn't an outlier, but a clear and consistent pattern. But U.S. legislation uniquely targeted immigrants from Asian countries. There was a concern about the yellow peril that Chinese at first and then Japanese would be threatening the white race. Understanding what had happened with the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Japanese government, facing pressure from the United States, signed the Gentleman's Agreement of 1907. The Gentleman's Agreement uh, restricted Japanese immigration only to family members of those who were already in the United States. No more Issei could immigrate to the U.S., and the ones who were already here continued to face prejudice. Asians still couldn't become citizens unless they were born here. And in 1923, anti-Japanese legislators passed a Montana law that said, if you couldn't become a citizen, you couldn't own land. But while policies and prejudice would continue to make life difficult for Issei, Others embraced their Japanese neighbors. I'll tell you what I do with my time when I'm not cooking meals at 12 o'clock in the morning and washing socks. This is a letter written by Elizabeth Peck, a whitefish woman who, in the 1920s, was a member of the Presbyterian Church of Whitefish. It's being read for us by a voice actor. I took, for my part of the work in the church, the Japanese. We have 14 families and 50 single men. They work for the railroad, most of them. I teach them to talk English, read, and write it. And if I do say it, I've accomplished it. I never hoped to do so well when I started. Elizabeth wasn't a wealthy woman or a philanthropist. Here's Jessie Frazier, one of the congregation members who met me at the church. She was very poor. She had two boys to raise. She, uh, her husband died when they, the kids were very young. Mm. So she lived in a tar paper shack thing out someplace. Mm. I have three classes at the house, and then I go twice a week to their homes. That is the ones that have children and can't come to me. And the Japanese would give her gifts to get her food, you know, gifts of food, chicken and eggs and, Mm. and things like that, because she just in thank you for doing what she was doing. One month, I helped one man to buy a house helped to bury one man that was drowned, and helped two babies into the world. And even though these events took place over a hundred years ago, this kindness is still visible. We built a new church this year, cost $40,000, and I asked for a donation of the Japanese men, said it would be nice if they could give a window. Well, they sent in a check for $705. 
bought two windows. And when the windows came, one of them said, For Mrs. Elizabeth D. Peck from the Japanese. What an honor to live up to. The Japanese families and men of Whitefish collected $705, over $8,000 today, and donated two pairs of windows to the church. One pair was dedicated to Elizabeth Peck, and the other simply says, with gratitude, from the Japanese. Because of Great Northern, Whitefish was home to a thriving Japanese community. A community that included railroad laborers, but also the owners of a candy store, a successful laundromat, and what many accounts described as the best restaurant in town. A community that was asked to put on a firework display for the 4th of July, 1909, which one newspaper called the finest pyrotechnic display the county had ever seen. A community that, largely, isn't here anymore. Those businesses have closed, those Issei have passed away, and their children, for the most part, have moved on. This history isn't easy to find. It's important for us to understand what they contributed, how they contributed, and the sacrifices that they made in order to help themselves, but even more so to help our country. They were important contributors to the United States of America, even though they weren't treated fairly during their times. When I asked Linda why it's so hard to track down these stories, she pointed me to her grandmother. It came to me that Grandma didn't want to consider herself important enough to be interviewed by someone. She told me, I'm just a poor old woman. I've not done anything significant in my life. Now, if you want to interview someone important, go talk to Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, there's a woman who should be interviewed. But she said, uh, there's nothing that I've done in my life that's important. You shouldn't ask me questions. That would signify what every Issei told me. They wanted to focus on the group. And I would think that might have a lot to do with why you're having difficulty with stories, too. Mm-hmm. I think there are other reasons, though. Um, they spoke Japanese. They wrote in Japanese. Any documents I found, any photos with inscriptions needed to be translated by those who spoke old Japanese. And there aren't that many, that many anymore now. In many ways, I think they don't want to harbor on the difficulties of the past. Mm -hmm. Now that they were finally getting along with others, their neighbors, they didn't want to bring up difficulties. So they really chose not to speak about the past. They wanted to leave it there. They wanted to move on and focus on positive. Unfortunately, yeah, there's a lot that we've lost, but hopefully there will be photos and documents that will help us to uncover more of those stories. Linda, highlighting how much of this history we've lost, it made me grateful for the National Register of Historic Places a tool that helps communities preserve and share the history they have left. I ran this by Paul Lusignan, the historian from the Register program. In just thinking through this story, I I learned about the history of these Japanese railroad laborers through the Register listing for this church in Whitefish. And it got me thinking that, you know, when I come to Glacier, a million acres, this grand place, you kind of implicitly expect to hear the stories of, like, grand people, too, and that 
the register seems to me like a way of preserving the stories that might not fit into that expectation. To you, how does the register complement the other parts of the National Park Service in pursuit of our mission? I, I think you hit it the nail on the head. I mean, it allows for kind of different perspectives and looking at the full story. You know, there's only so many times you can mention that Theodore Roosevelt came out here and stayed for a while. It's like, okay, if the Park Service is supposed to be conveying a, a preservation, conservation ethic, well, what types of things are we conserving, protecting, and recognizing? What was it like to be a worker there? Who did they displace when they developed the park? There's nothing wrong with the big and grand resources. They're great, and they deserve to be preserved, but they don't tell the full story. And that's where I think that the register program helps you know, augment that and can augment that. And it's, again, it's not the only tool, but it is a good preservation tool yeah. um, to use. One example is the First Presbyterian Church of Whitefish. As it approached 100 years old, the building was showing its age. It literally was falling down. And you could see, I mean, we were outside. He said, look up there. And you could literally see the bricks separating from the wall, you know, like it's going to come down. (laughs) One suggestion was to sell the valuable downtown real estate and move the congregation to a new and improved building. But they decided instead to repair, in large part because of the building's history little things that don't show up on your property value, but that do show up on your National Register listing. Because it's a historical church. And so, one of the few pieces left of this Montana Issei community is protected. Not only are the windows still there, but people like Jesse will welcome you in and share their story. To end this story, I wanted to do something that I've never done before. Are you excited? I'm excited. I've never ridden a train before. Unless you count the one at my zoo growing up. Mm. But that was like a small fake train. I was joined by Gabby. There it is. After spending the entire summer digging into the history of this railway, I thought it would be fitting to actually ride it. There aren't too many people here. Last name, guys? Uh, Faced and Estaveri. I gotcha. Thank you. You guys are good to go. Great. Alrighty, thank you so much. You bet. Or whatever. I'm not the tallest person in the world, but I can stretch my legs out completely before it hits the other seat. Yeah, it's comfortable. In this episode, I set out to answer the question, who built the Great Northern Railway? And looked at the story from the top down and the bottom up. But if I'm being honest, you could probably guess which version of this you're likely to hear if you come to the park. James J. Hill is on the greatest hits of Ranger-led program topics, a larger-than-life figure, and a remarkable success story. I never knew about this other piece of this history. 15% of the people, I would say, in this car are sleeping, which is why I'm talking quietly. We're trying not to be too annoying. (laughs) The National Park Service is famous for big parks like Glacier, grand landscapes full of powerful people, but those parks are outnumbered by the over 90,000 sites that tell the rest of America's story. Places identified by a community, not by an act of Congress. Smaller stories that might not need a full staff of park rangers, but that are no less worthy of preserving. And that's comforting to me. Okay, we made it to the lounge car. We did. Yeah. This is cool, there's more windows here. It's 
Yeah, like got skylights, wraparound windows. People are working on their laptops, reading books, eating a breakfast burger. I thought that was a bold choice. <laughs> in the end, I think it's taught me that however small I might feel in a place like this, however insignificant my life may seem when stacked against these great men of history, we all lead lives worthy of remembering. Are we, are we trained people? I think I'm a trained person now. The people who bend history to their will and those of us along for the ride. Headwaters is a production of Glacier National Park with support from our partner, the Glacier National Park Conservancy. This season of Headwaters was made by Daniel Lombardi, Perry Sassnet, Michael Faist, and Gabby Asaveri. Frank Wallen wrote and performed our music, and Eric Carlson created this season's cover art. Season three absolutely would not exist without Lacey Kowalski, Melissa Slotik, Sierra Mandelko, Brent Rowley, Darren Lewis, and the whole team at the Park Archives. We relied on a lot of great resources from the Montana Historical Society too. Special thanks this episode to Steven Sadis, Lucas Hugi, Paul Lusignan, and Linda Tumura. And thanks as well to everyone with the First Presbyterian Church of Whitefish, but especially Bob, Paul, and Jesse. Great Northern Filmworks for permission to share excerpts from their series, Empire Builder, James J. Hill and the Great Northern Railway, filmmaker Pat Murdo, and the University of Montana's Mansfield Center for permission to share clips from their documentary, From the Far East to the Old West. And lastly, of course, thank you to everyone at Amtrak for helping Michael fulfill a years-long dream of getting to ride a train. Next time on Headwaters. We follow in the footsteps of some of the first Black Americans in these mountains to find out how they got here and uncover what happened to their history. It matters who tells the story. This is the question of representation, but it's also a question of history. There were several places on the trail where a misstep meant certain death. Will this place remember me? Will it remember my shadow cast on the earth? Will it remember the sound of my horse? Will that be remembered? That's next time on Headwaters. So Headwaters is made possible by the Glacier Conservancy, right, mm-hmm. Andrew? But uh, you also fund a lot of other projects going on in the park. Do you have any examples? Yeah, a really cool one is the ranger-led education programming that's going to be happening, yes. has been happening. Yeah, well, I, I know what that is because I've worked in that position. What is well, What are the ranger-led activities? Yeah, so students can come in, visit Glacier National Park and go on a field trip with a ranger, which is a really special experience for them. Uh, but we also are going to be offering classroom visits, so rangers will come to local schools and, and teach them about the park, as well as expanding our distance learning. So students all around the country from every state can get to experience a little glimpse of Glacier National Park, which I think is a pretty cool opportunity for them. No, definitely. Uh, you get one day rangers leading students up to Avalanche Lake. Uh, later in the winter, you're giving snowshoe programs or you're talking to students in Puerto Rico with the green screen. It's, you know, it's a really cool program. So if you want to learn more about that project and others that the Conservancy funds, uh, where can they go to find that information? Check out our website. It's easy to remember, glacier.org.